Whitney. I'm Danielle. And we are the founders of Sakara Life, on a mission to nourish your body and transform your life. Sakara is a Sanskrit word that describes the action of turning your thoughts into things and manifesting your reality. We believe that who we surround ourselves with, what we watch, what we listen to, what we eat, the information that we take in, impacts the way we think and therefore who we are. The conversations that follow are with bold thinkers who have had an impact on how we view the world, ourselves, and what it means to live the Saqqara life. The intention of these conversations is to push each of us to greater heights so that we can turn our thoughts into things and all shine our light a little brighter. We are so excited to be on this journey with you. Welcome to the Sakara Life. Today, I am so excited to welcome a personal friend, Dr. Ellen Vora. She graduated from Columbia University Medical School, received her undergrad in English from Yale University, and is a board-certified psychiatrist, medical acupuncturist, and yoga teacher. Dr. Vora takes a functional medicine approach to mental health, considering the whole person and addressing imbalance at the root, rather than reflexively prescribing medication. Ellen specializes not only in traditional psychiatric areas like depression and anxiety, but also on digestive issues and how gut health impacts our mental state, which is one of the many reasons we are so excited to have her here today. Please welcome Dr. Ellen Bora. Also, please note we are recording from our homes via Zoom, so please forgive us for any sound issues. So, hi, Ellen. We are so happy to have you on the Sakara Life podcast today. Hi, Thank Whitney. You for joining us. Thanks for having me here. It's an honor. We like to start out by asking our guests about your own personal mission. So, Ellen, what is your mission? Why are you here on this planet? Mm. So, well, I was in Brazil a couple of years ago and I got a very clear download while um, in an ayahuasca ceremony that was basically wow. saying, um, Ellen, your role is to heal the bodies. And I was like, okay, roger that. And I actually think that it's a little bit of an oversimplification, um, but I knew what this sort of divine spirit meant, um, which is my role is really to change the conversation around mental health and to bridge two extremes that are happening right now in mental health. There's sort of this orthodoxy conventional approach, which helps a lot of people and has a role. But right now it's like 99% of how we approach mental health and it should probably be a smaller percentage. And then we have a little bit of like another extreme, which is um, it can be um, a little bit alienating for some people. And it's basically saying like, get off of all pharmaceuticals and do this naturally. And it's sort of like the natural childbirth of mental health method. And I like to be a bit of a moderate between those two worlds and um, help people navigate um, how to manage their mental health and think creatively and, and think resourcefully about what they really could do to feel their best and what resonates for them, what makes sense for them in their lives. Can you talk about how you define, I guess, healthy mentality, mental health? I know I've heard you talk about kind of the different types of anxieties and how some are kind of self-imposed and some are healthy. Can you talk about all of that? Yeah, I guess I think that um, like everything that people like us in our wellness bubble focus on, sometimes we miss the forest for the trees and we basically say like health for the sake of health and focus so much on wellness and eating right and doing everything perfectly. And it's almost as if that were the goal. But that's actually never the goal, right? It's that you feel well enough that you can go on and fulfill your life's purpose, you know, that you can feel a sense of purpose and meaning in your life. You can feel joy and pleasure. Um, you can feel Feel awe and gratitude. You can make a contribution and help others. That's like the real goal. And sometimes we need a shift in how our mental health or our physical health is doing as a foundation so that we're capable of getting out and doing what we need to do. I'm writing a book on anxiety right now, which has been um, a labor of love, but it's been a really good at forcing me to actually make sense of my thoughts. And what I've realized recently is that we have false anxiety and true anxiety. 
And false anxiety, it's all this anxiety. I think it's most of the anxiety. And it's actually caused by these little, seemingly innocent, unexamined practices that are really common in modern life. And they're tripping our body into a stress response. And then we're feeling anxious. And we don't know that it's because we're sensitive to caffeine or we're chronically sleep deprived or because the phone is on our bedside table at night. Sort of all these little things that we do um, that are making us very anxious. So I think that the heal the bodies part is basically eradicate the false anxiety. Nobody needs anything extra to feel anxious about in today's world. And then what remains is the true anxiety. And that's, that's the real stuff. That's our heart. That's that silent whispering voice inside of us that's telling us, hey, something's not right here. Whether it's in your own personal life, whether it's in the world at large, whether it's climate change, but it's something that we're being asked to listen to and to honor and to take action about. That really resonates with me. I definitely felt a lot of anxiety in my early 20s um, in college and in moving to New York City. And I didn't know at the time that it was a message. It was my inner voice telling me that I needed to get on my path, that I needed to take action, that I needed to stop questioning myself and, I don't know, putting, putting all of this pressure on myself and just go do it. And once I started taking more action and even the things that weren't necessarily the right things for me in my life helped to push me onto my right path. But I've noticed as I've gotten older that there's this other anxiety I've become aware of, which is from my empath side. I'm very, I'm very much an empath and being in New York City, that can be a little bit difficult too, um, feeling other people's energies. But I, I really do feel when other people are thinking about me or having certain feelings about me, I can feel their feeling. Uh, whether they're in the room with me or long distance. And so I've started to tune in when I feel anxiety and ask myself, is this my anxiety or is this somebody else's anxiety? And so now I have to differentiate, yeah, is it the physical anxiety of was I having too much caffeine? Is it my inner voice or is this somebody else? And I need to clear up that space, clear up the energy between me and that person because I'm feeling their anxiety. Yeah. Yeah, I think we could all do well, like all of us empaths, to have practices for discerning. I think discernment is like this all-important skill to cultivate in our lives where we discern, is this my own anxiety? Is this somebody else's that I'm picking up on? Um, or is it that sort of liminal anxiety of, I sense shit talking happening mm -hmm. about me, right? Which isn't exactly somebody else's anxiety, but there's basically what's triggering us is an invitation if we want to take it in that moment for like, okay, like what do I need to look at in myself? Why is this triggering me? Why is this relationship not right? Is it worth working on and salvaging? Is it actually someone not in their highest vibration? Is it just an opportunity to have compassion for somebody not being their best self? All of these different questions arise. I also love the idea that we do have to sift through the, our anxieties, that some are just simple kind of things that we can fix and some are a gift asking us to shift something in our life. Like I, I haven't really heard that anxiety can sometimes be a gift. Yeah. And I mean, sometimes I think it's a little bit like people would bristle at that idea. It's like, don't tell me my anxiety is a gift. Like this is my, the bane of my existence. Um, but I think it's all, it's still just a matter of um, recognizing like some of it is the bane of your existence and let's work on making less of that anxiety in your life or at least for the remaining anxiety, giving you a way of being in a dance with it that doesn't drop you to your knees all the time. And then what ends up happening, anxiety is a little bit squirmy and a little wiggly. And when we resist it and try to strong arm it, that's actually when it kind of redoubles its efforts. And it's just like, nope, like I was whispering, then I was talking, now I'm shouting at you. You know, that's when someone starts having panic attacks. It's like when we try to ignore it or resist it, it actually just gets stronger. But sometimes when we shift our whole mindset about it and recognize it as a gift and something to be listened to, sometimes when it conveys its message to us effectively, then it's almost like the anxiety itself subsides. It's like, okay, thank you. You're back on your path. You're taking action. You don't need to feel anxious anymore. So there's something really powerful about recognizing it as a gift. So what are some of the tools that you use to start to discover 
the root cause of this anxiety? If there's a message behind it, how do you start to dig into what that message could be? Yeah, so I usually start, well, at least in the pre-coronavirus days, I start with the physical. Like to me, mm. that's the low-hanging fruit. That's the, that's the first action step is what are you eating? How are you sleeping? Are you sensitive to caffeine? Are you bringing the phone into the bedroom at night? How's your information diet? You know, like are you mm-hmm. just plugged in 24-7 by IV drip to sensationalizing fear-mongering media? You just want to sort of like look at all of these causes of potential false anxiety and slay, you know, just clean it up. And make sure that there isn't anything tripping your body into a stress response that's not like you can make choices like I am eating this and I know it will make me anxious, but I choose to do this in this moment. It feels worth it to me. So, you know, you still have the right to make you can you can navigate that process however you want. But I want people to be informed and to know all the physical potential causes. Then once we've done that, it's basically whatever form of listening lights you up. So for some people, they want to sit in meditation, just sit in stillness and open inquiry and listen to their body. And once we get to that point of stillness and silence, sometimes that little voice can bubble up. Sometimes it's being in connection with nature. So many of us are so estranged from nature, whether we live in the city or even we could live in, we can live in a rural setting and spend all day indoors watching Netflix. So Mm -hmm. for all of us to be connected to nature. And then for some people, it's actually expressing themselves, making art. You can be chanting, you can be drawing, but drawing like a three-year-old draws, not like how a 30-year-old draws. So that unedited, uncensored way of just taking what's inside of you and getting it out into the world, chanting, singing, Dancing is one of my favorite ways, actually. I feel like if I put on the right music and just really goofy, ecstatic, therapeutic dance for a few hours, whatever needed to be conveyed, it comes out. And I I have clarity after that. So for whatever reason, moving my body, it's almost like some of my hidden messages are like stuck in my hips or my knees. And I I think dancing somehow helps um, excavate that and bring it up to the surface. So how can we tell what amount of anxiety or depression or kind of any other mental health disorder? Like how how much is normal versus how much is not normal? I think that um, it just really depends on the person. Some people are physically really out of balance. And, you know, if your gut is not right, if the bugs in your gut are not right, if you're constantly bloated, if you couldn't poop, if your life depended on it, and when you do, it's loose stool, if you have acne and polycystic ovary syndrome and joint pain and migraines, I'm just describing me in my 20s right now, right? So, <laughs> like, if everything's out of balance in your body, probably most of what's showing up are false moods. And in a certain way, there's an overarching true mood, which is something's not right here. And it's like, yeah, no shit, Sherlock, but I don't know how to fix it. I went on a very inefficient 10-year path figuring out how to get my body well. And, um, And then once, now I operate in a state where I'm generally well. And if I dip into another state, I basically do the following assessment. Did I just eat something different? Did I do something different? In which case, that's sort of a likely culprit. Um, That'll happen for me. Recently, I was feeling suddenly anxious and there were two things going on. One thing was that I started a new multivitamin that contained the amino acid tyrosine, which can act as a bit of a stimulant. So I found a physical culprit for why I was feeling a pit of my stomach anxiety, kind of a feeling all of a sudden. But I also put a post out on social media that talked about um, how my daughter had a meltdown after eating processed food. And it was my first experience being trolled, like really Mm. trolled, which apparently calling people out on the fact that processed foods affect our mood is a controversial thing to say. It was a total mob takedown. And that felt obviously really uneasy. Even within that, there were two layers. There was one layer, which was I wanted to go hide under a rock and basically never speak my truth again because it was too painful, too uncomfortable. I was like, fine, I'll just put like totally benign, um, watered down statements on social media. I'll be like, hey, it's okay to pause. You know, who's going to say no to that? (laughs) Um, Just tell people their drugs are okay and you're making everyone happy. But then after a few days of reflection, I realized everyone who I really respect gets severely trolled. Because if you're speaking your truth, it's uncomfortable for some people. And that is actually not the reason to step down. That is the reason to keep going. 
So deep breath. And I've just, I'm just gone deeper into my truth in response to it. So it was a pathy anxiety at the same time. And I want to ask this question without sounding insensitive. And I'm asking, why is it that some people don't want to believe that our lifestyle choices impact our mental health? Like, why is it that people want to only believe that a pharmaceutical drug that goes through the same kind of digestive tract as food is the only thing that can have an impact on our mental health and not not our lifestyle choices and our dietary choices. Like why why do why are people so much more willing to believe the former rather than the latter? Okay. Three pronged answer. Prong number one, it's what we've been taught, you know, and taught very thoroughly. So it's what I'm taught in medical school and in psychiatry residency. It's what we're taught through direct to consumer marketing that depression, anxiety is a genetic chemical imbalance in the brain. It's your serotonin take this pill, it corrects it. So we've been really thoroughly taught this message that you seem like scientifically uninformed if you don't say depression is a chemical imbalance in the brain. So you have to just like think that it's a genetic chemical imbalance. That's the answer. Proceed forward. That's prong number one. Nothing really controversial there. It's just like people are like, what do you mean? It's something fluffy like what you eat. Obviously, it's hard science. It's serotonin. The researchers in white coats found out this answer. So there's your truth. Um, the prong number two is that it does, it does take us out of a position of agency and for better and worse. But in some sense, for better to, to some people, because it's when you say you are empowered to actually um, affect your own mental health with the choices that you make in a day-to-day basis. You know, it doesn't require a doctor, doesn't require a psychiatrist, doesn't require a prescription pad. It's on you. That's like, for some people, hey, wow, that's empowering. That's amazing. Self-healer. I feel so strong. And for some people, it's like, shit. And that's a lot of responsibility. And it can even feel like blame. It's like, you're telling me that I'm depressed and anxious because of things that I did. Right. I'm a good person. I'm a hardworking. I eat my low-fat dairy and skinless chicken breast and take my jogs and I'm doing everything right. So no, that's not, that doesn't feel good to be told that. So when we tell people it's something that happened to you, it's in your genes, um, it's a chemical imbalance, it's not your fault, just take this pill, it, it takes off the responsibility and that feels good to people. The third prong, which is I think the one that's like part of my purpose in life, but is a very unfun kind of torch to carry is that when we call people out, when we call, I'll I'll include myself in this, when we call ourselves out on our addictions, you're going to get a lot of resistance. I think about like, you say, I got to go to rehab. I say, no, no, no. Right. It's like, if you say um, you have a problem with alcohol, you're not going to get, oh, you know what? Maybe you're right. (laughs) You know, you're going to get, fuck you. And so think that it's actually the same conversation that's happening around processed foods, around um, addiction to social media and video games and porn and you name it and booze and coffee and even to some extent prescription medications. And I think that it's a really sensitive, touchy conversation. And I don't blame people for bristling. It's the natural thing. It's your brain basically saying, do not take away my addiction. I am dependent on it physiologically, but it's a, it's touchy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think it can be easier for people to recognize how food impacts children and their behavior. Different packaged food companies in the EU and the UK are actually required to have a warning label if they contain things like yellow dye number six, which has been seen to be an endocrine disruptor and can have effects on mood and behavior in children. And so they actually have to put that on the label that it could affect your child's behavior. But it's the same thing in adults, right? And and it can be things that you think are even healthy. My husband, when we were first dating, he used to keep a a carton of orange juice, you know, mm-hmm. the type of orange juice that can last like three months or whatever <laughs> in your fridge, not the fresh squeezed from an orange. And he would pull it out and just like chug this orange juice. And I would notice his uh, mood change because of this orange juice. And and he thought he was doing something really healthy for himself. And I was like, no, that's, you know, just basically sugar. It has no fiber. It 
is not even real fresh oranges in there. Like he's not from America. I was like, this is welcome to America. This is American (laughs) food. And once he removed that, you know, moods were much more stable. And so I think, yeah, it's it's easy to look at children and, and say that, but we also need to look at ourselves and look at what our triggers are, like you were talking about. Yeah. Yeah, I think that um, basically, you know, it's almost like this yellow dye might affect children is sort of like you might recognize that this affects children, but it's grownups are a little bit, it's sort of the way it shows up is a little bit more of a winding road, but we are at the end of the day, just gigantic toddlers. And, um, and we are absolutely affected by the drug-like foods, by the different um, colors and additives. It can affect our brain chemistry and it affects our mood and how we feel and how we focus And I always think it's interesting when you see people from other parts of the world or older generations, and they kind of have an attitude of, you can trust food. And you almost want to say like, oh, I'm so sorry, but, you know, like, welcome to the United States in 2020. Like, for a little while now here, you can't. And, um, and it's a real inconvenient truth. It's because it, I really struggle with this one. It makes me such a precious snowflake. Um, it's that Portlandia episode where it's like, can totally. we eat the chicken? Can we go to the farm? And I hate to be that person, but you cannot assume that what's being fed to you is real food, that there's any integrity at any point in the supply chain. And it matters. We're imbibing this. We're putting it into our bodies. We're contributing to that treatment of animals. We're contributing to that treatment of the soil. Like, I think that, it's almost like I love the idea of being chill, but like we shouldn't be chill about this. Um, we actually should be proudly precious about it. Yeah, and it's not, it's not, it, to me, it's so odd that it's seen as precious. Like my mom half the time thinks I'm, I'm crazy and ridiculous about like organic and the quality of food, but I'm like, this is just how food should be. It's what's the word for people that are okay with it, you know, being kind of scientifically formulated to be addictive and have an impact on, you know, our emotional well-being, you know? Exactly. Exactly. I think in, in many ways there has been great marketing that makes it the cool, chill, easygoing thing to do is just be like, whatever, this food is nostalgic and it's kind of cute and cool that I eat this way, like from childhood. And it's like, you know, I'm just Captain No Fun. I'm just totally. like, yeah, you eat that way. But like, if I ate that way, I wouldn't poop. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't get my period. And I would be, I would just be a shell of myself. And so precious, precious is my only option. Yeah. And there's also people that not to keep calling my mom out, bless her, but sometimes she'll say things like, you know, I'm just going to treat myself. Like, but it, it, you know, it's not a treat, right? Like it's, it's, it's poison. And there are ways that we can, like if treating yourself is maybe having something a little sweeter or an extra glass of wine, like there are really healthy ways to do that. Like I'm certainly not perfect. You know, the name of our cookbook is eat clean, play dirty. Like I'm, <laughs> I'm not about perfection in any way, but why not let the quote imperfections still be kind of generally good for you instead of toxic? I think the treat yourself concept is super important and full of nuance. And it's like the mentality behind it. Well, we could go in many different directions with this, but I think that with patients, I'm often working to find ways where we can treat ourselves when you need that treat, which sort of is built into like, but why is your life necessitating, you know, like, couldn't we actually just work less, be burned out less and, and not need that escape quite as often? But say you need the escape, is there a way to escape in a way that leaves you feeling better afterward rather than worse afterward? But then I'm going to sort of say the thing that's opposite everything we've been talking about, which is that another real problem, especially in our world, is orthorexia and getting sort of obsessive about eating perfectly. Mm-hmm. And I, I wish that, you know, that people kind of got how to be moderate and flexible and sort of reasonable about all these things, like inform yourself, power, empower yourself with the knowledge, and then navigate the choices of your life in a way that's ultimately self-love and reasonable. But I think that it doesn't always work that way. And a lot of people get really extreme with it and it becomes its own eating disorder. And so in a way, I think that 
I, I encourage people to 80% of the time, like know what you're eating, be the precious snowflake and make sure that what you're contributing to with your dollars, with your bites is food with integrity. And then sort of that last percentage of your life, recognize that your body's not that fragile and that yeah. you can handle it. And if you find yourself out with friends for dinner, that if you're eating something that's not perfectly with integrity, remember the global sort of well-being thing that's happening in life here is that you're connecting with friends, you're socializing, you're feeling held in community, you're sharing in a meal and in pleasure. And a lot of those things are also very beneficial to our health. And so even if you're eating the food in that right setting and right state of mind, this is still net positive for you. And even if it's just bad, then shift your mentality quickly too. It's, it might be an oil spill, but my body is an ocean and I can handle this. Mm, I love that. I wanted to get back to talking about this idea we talked about at the beginning of the inner voice. And Whitney and I talk a lot about how our lifestyle choices kind of intercept that ability to listen to our inner voice and cultivate that inner knowing. We call it body intelligence. Um, So I guess the question is twofold. One, how do you connect like inner voice and mental health? And then second was we were talking about empaths. And sometimes I, I come up against that word because I like, isn't it everyone's right to be an empath and, And is this ultimately just about cultivating that inner voice so that we all get to be um, an empath listening to one another? Great questions. Um, Let me actually answer that second part first and then go back to sort of that listening. Um, I think that empaths, we are, I think it actually makes sense that different members of the species will have a nervous system that's sort of dialed to a different like attunement level because mm-hmm. we sort of need some people who I think of as like the life naturals. Um, that's a term from, I think Sarah Wilson's book, first we make the beast beautiful. It's a great book about anxiety. And um, basically there are going to be people who are our, our surgeons and our pilots who are just like, yep, life, whatever I can eat. I can come across whatever energy and it doesn't get me off balance. And I think it's great mm-hmm. that we have these humans. I ain't one of those humans, but I'm glad that those humans exist and they don't need to do anything differently. And then we have people who are tuned really wide open, have a huge antenna and are very sensitive. And that's not pathologic. That's um, an important part of the species. When we look at like groups of primates, basically, if you take the sensitive ones, the neurotic ones out of the tribe, that whole tribe doesn't survive as well as if you leave them in there. Like it serves a role for the safety of the overall group. We're basically the ones who are saying like, I feel the winds blowing this way and (laughs) coronavirus is coming or climate change is a thing and we need to make changes or um, whatever it is. Or like in my case, like something doesn't feel right to me about the way we're dealing with mental health. We need people who who are dialed open in that way who are going to be feeling very deeply. And it's a gift and a liability all at the same time because it makes you not so much a life natural because if you live in a place like New York City, the horns are honking, the drills are drilling, there's a lot of energies coming at you and um, you almost need a practice for shielding yourself or discharging some of that energy after you get home. But I think at the same time, um, we're, we have an important role and that kind of ties back into anxiety as a gift. It's like recognize that this is your role, embrace it. Um, and take action. I love that explanation. I think if I'm understanding correctly the first part of your question, it's like the listening around mental health. And I mean, maybe I've almost like forgotten the details of the question, but I'll tell you what it prompted in me and maybe you'll sort of ask it again to make sure we get me on track. But it made me think about the ways we're taught in so many different, with our conditioning, with the sort of the word should that comes up in all areas of our life. We basically are just taught to systematically betray ourselves and our own truth. And we don't we don't get the memo that what we are passionate about, what feels true to us is enough, is valid, is perfect. There it is. Like that's the path. And instead we're taught to go in all these circuitous roundabout ways into other people's truths and other people's expectations and all the societal conditioning of what's expected of us and all the shoulds of how we think we could impress people. And we get so distracted in all these tributaries. And I think that that is a big 
it plays a role in mental health rather than mental health just being this thing that randomly drops on you if you have a family history of it. It has a lot to do with you in um, dynamic with yourself as you go through life. And if you're betraying yourself, which I don't blame people for this, right? Like it's almost, it's hard not to, right? It's being taught to us. Um, But if you do betray yourself, there's going to be a whispering voice inside of you that's saying like, hey, like, can we get into, can you get into couples therapy with yourself? Like, can we get back into a good place? Can we get back into good communication with each other? That one was a perfect answer. And to hit such a chord, it just reminded me of, of giving birth and how much I was constantly teetering between my inner voice and the medical voice. And I don't think that any way of birthing a child or anything into this world, I don't think there is a best way. Um, I think the best way is where you feel empowered. So if you feel empowered calling up your OB and saying, I want a scheduled C-section, that is an empowered birth. If you want to give birth in a tub in the middle of the woods by yourself, like that is an empowered birth. But what you said about cultivating that inner voice, it's like I, I personally find that oftentimes when I'm met with kind of the medical world, I feel like I often have to put aside my inner voice. And I feel like what I hear you saying is that there is room and and certainly um, importance on kind of both of those sides coming together because in order for you to heal, you have to cultivate that inner voice, but you also might need the guidance of the medical community to get there. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think like childbirth, right? Something so cosmic and so sacred. There is no wrong. There's just something like deeply personal. And sometimes the way it it goes awry is part of the journey, right? <laughs> like, absolutely. And, and so I don't think that there's like so many accidents, but I do think that there is like what it means to be giving birth in America in 2020 and sort of like all of the pressures on us. I think the medical system, I mean, I'm a part of it, but maybe even more than that, like I am myself, I, I consider myself like somewhat traumatized by it, both like as a patient, but then also as a med student resident. And I think that I don't know. I think right now it's it's really sensitive because like, you know, support the troops, right? It's sort of like right now it's like, you know, heroes and like our frontline healthcare workers. And I and I get that and I really do. I'm I'm grateful to every single medical worker of, you know, of every aspect of how the hospital functions for showing up right now. Um, but I also think that, you know, to me they're not um immune from the fact that we can still sort of discuss the brokenness of our medical system. And yeah, I don't know. I think it's like really, really scary to question the orthodoxy. And so I think you see a lot of people kind of like just going along, unquestioning and practicing in that way, because stepping outside, you risk like lots of, um, like people will laugh at you almost, you know, it's like, this is part of why we're taught not to listen to our inner voice, right? Like intuition is not an acceptable thing to say like, well, my intuition told me, you know, it's like maybe in our circles, we're sitting around like chanting and doing sound therapy and it's like a sound bath, right? And we're like, my intuition told me, we're all like, yay. But like in the medical setting, if you're sitting around at a conference table on rounds and it's like, why'd you do that with your patients? Like, well, my intuition, (laughs) it's like, you're fine. Yeah, and it all needs to be evidence-based and there's nothing wrong with evidence-based, but like it's a masculine enough feminine energy like they need to be in a yin yang kind of balance with each other the pursuit of truth and documenting truth in a scientific inquiry kind of way is fabulous it and also people using their sophisticated machinery of their brains to sense what's going on around them and use all the data points from their life far more than any computer can take into consideration like it's um that's also valuable and i think that it's not at all acceptable in our conventional medical system so we're in a, it's a very imbalanced system it's just sort of it's yang it's just yang mm-hmm. and there's very little yin and using our intuition can also push things forward and and help things evolve because in the medical system we're just using what we know is true today but as we've seen over the time and over history things that used to be true before might not be true today 
you know, where I was prescribed lots of antibiotics over the course of my lifetime. Um, and now so many doctors would be like, no, no, do not take an antibiotic for that. Don't take an antibiotic for your acne and whatnot. And so, you know, and my intuition was saying, don't do it and don't do another round of Accutane. But, and now I think there's a lot of science that supports that. And so I think it's, you know, how can intuition play a role in guiding the future of science as well? Yeah, and they also don't have to be separate. I mean, sometimes your intuition might say, yeah, I'm in a place where I need pharmaceutical help or, you mm-hmm. know, I need kind of the more of the yang side of care. And I think the power is really learning how to cultivate and then listen to that inner voice. Yeah, I mean, there's certainly a place for um, like, to releasing stigma and hesitation to accepting help like pharmaceuticals. Like that's a layer of this, like Lady Gaga going on Oprah and saying, get help if you need help. Like for anybody who's like not even feeling comfortable, bold, courageous, self-worthy enough to go and ask for help, like definitely ask for help. We're sort of like in this fine tuning layer of this, which is like what kind of help and in what form. Um, And Whitney, to your point, like, yeah, like you could be a doctor today and you could say, did you know they used to like put leeches on people to do bloodletting? How crazy today we've got it all figured out. (laughs) And we do these medications that are, um, have come out from the pharmaceutical industry, which is a shareholder-driven, money-driven industry that's somehow calling the shots about what we do with health, which like in a way, money just doesn't belong in the conversation of how do we navigate health. Like that's the Mm -hmm. tricky thing when we, that's a whole other conversation. But I think that when, to me, there's like always going to be a compass that feels true and can stand the test of time. And I think a compass that feels very true when it comes to health interventions is that um, it doesn't mean don't ever do an intervention, but at least always recognize that anything we do to the body um, has a ripple effect. It doesn't just affect one small thing. It affects a, a vast interconnected web. And so the, everything will have unintended consequences. Everything will have ramifications. And so you just, you know, wield your sword judiciously and mm-hmm. um, it's not just nothing comes free you don't just get to excise something or attack something with a medication and have no downstream consequences my mom's brother also lived in Sedona just down the street from my mom and I so my uncle and I was super close to him growing up he was severely depressive probably had other things that I just didn't know. Um, He was often like alone in his house, sometimes wouldn't talk to the family, but I was really, really close to him from kid all the way up until he ended up committing suicide when I was like 21. And I, I remember so much about him, obviously, but a few of kind of the lifestyle choices I remember were he lived on red vines and like gummy bears. Um, he drank a lot of diet soda. He oftentimes would like stay indoors. And then he was always, always, always on this cocktail of medication. And, you know, we were always like, as I got older, talking about the new one and how we had to change things depending on how he felt. And I just like now knowing what I know, which is still so small and compared to what you know, or, you know, any other kind of mental health doctor, but I know a lot about like the lifestyle choices and I just, I know that was never a conversation that was had with him. Um, and I just, I guess my, my wish and my hope is that, you know, healers everywhere, whether you're an MD or healing some other way is like that that's a part of every conversation around mental health. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's crazy to me every day that it's still not the standard of care like it's still a very weird rogue thing to do to meet a patient and ask about their diet and their digestive habits and um like all of that but that's Why my is interview that? but like you, you know we're we have studies even at Saqqara that we show how food impacts mental health like it's it's in the literature why why is it not part of the practice I'm not sure I really know um, because I'm sort of like so on the other side of it that I think it's outrageous when it when it isn't but my theories are one thing is like 
psychiatry for a long, long time has been trying to legitimize itself as a science. And it's basically Mm -hmm. like, we're not a soft science. We're not fluffy. We're not just talking to people about what they eat. We're talking about good hard science. What medications are you taking? What have you, what medication trials have you had in the past? You know, sort of like feeling like surgeons and using our prescription pad liberally. Um, and then I think it is the education. It, it is like, and it's standard of care. There's fear, honestly. It's like, I am not practicing the standard of care in many ways. The standard of care would be that I have all of my patients on meds and I don't. And I even sometimes gasp, help my patients get off of meds, which is like, so not the standard of care. And it's scary stuff. And I think when I think about your uncle, like that's what makes me really Like it gives me like a very sinking feeling in the pit of my stomach because what people don't appreciate about psychiatric medications, and I'm not making a statement like there isn't a time and place for psych meds, there is, but to recognize that the ramp on and the ramp off periods with meds are very vulnerable times where people can have pretty kind of ego dystonic is sort of the clinical term, but like this is not you, this is sort of a a different kind of thought that just comes in and people can be kind of numb and impulsive and have really dark thoughts in those periods. And that's a very dangerous co- combination of feelings, numb, impulsive, and and sort of dark thoughts because I've seen a lot of patients, it, it feels very, very common that when patients are getting off of medications, at some point there's a moment where they have a passing suicidal thought. And this isn't necessarily true for someone Like it would make sense if someone was suicidally depressed, went off meds, got off meds and felt suicidally depressed. That would make sense to us. But what you see instead is someone might have gone on meds because they were going through a divorce and they were very stressed. And then they got on meds and then as they're getting off of meds, they're suicidal. And that doesn't make sense. They never were before. It has something to do with the neurochemical reality of withdrawal. And so withdrawal to me is a very scary thing. Um, There's like a handful of us weirdo psychiatrists who support patients getting off of meds. We need an army because a lot of people have reason to get off meds, whether they don't tolerate side effects or they don't want to be on it while they're pregnant or for whatever reason. And what happens is that their psychiatrists aren't knowledgeable about it and aren't even necessarily supportive of it. So people end up doing it on their own and people go cold turkey or they go into the the forums online, which are kind of good, but kind of scary at the same time. And so people, I think, have a a rougher time with it than they would if we had an army of people who were willing and able and informed about how to support it. And are these drugs designed to be used long-term or are they more designed to be used shorter term and then you get off of them? I I don't know all that much. I, I mean, I was put on different medications earlier in life and used them especially during hard times and then didn't feel like myself and wanted to to get off. But I've I've heard stories about how they weren't tested for long-term usage and now people are using them for long-term. Yeah, it sort of depends what you mean by design, right? There's like tested for, there's the intention, there's design. Um, I think that what ends up being true is that there's a talk at the beginning when you might be talking to a patient about starting a bed, which is, let's just go on this for a little while. Let's just use this as a bridge to get you to a place where you're okay. That almost implies that after a few months, you get your feet under you, and then it's like, okay, now we'll talk about getting off of it. I find that in practice, very few psychiatrists have that follow-up conversation. It's more like, well, it's working, let's stay on it. And if a patient is like, I think I want to try getting off of it, psychiatrists get very bristly about that because it's a really uncomfortable process for them. They weren't trained how to do it. It brings on a lot of liability. And the party line is basically, yeah, just stay on it. And if someone decides to go off of it and becomes symptomatic, we call that relapse rather than withdrawal. So it's not really recognized a withdrawal syndrome. SSRI discontinuation syndrome is still controversial and a lot of psychiatrists will deny it, even though patient after patient after patient reports, hey, I'm having brain saps, I'm feeling really irritable, I'm feeling anxious. Um, And that's if somebody knows to attribute their mood changes to the withdrawal. Sometimes they just feel that way and don't remember to link it to the withdrawal. I mean, we have a withdrawal from like coffee from 
aluminum in our deodorant. Like, yeah, that's crazy. <laughs> yeah, I didn't know about that last one. Um, it makes sense. Thank goodness for quarantine. Now I've just stopped using deodorant, but <laughs> even the organic stuff. But, um, but I think that, yeah, I mean, everything is a drug, right? Like, absolutely. Caffeine is a hardcore drug with a hardcore withdrawal process. And so the fact that we would deny that people would go into a withdrawal process when getting off of a powerful psychiatric medication that has an effect on brain chemistry. Of course, people have a withdrawal, but we're basically trained to say that if they can't hack it off the med, that's a relapse and you pop them right back on. And if someone goes through, I think it's three of those, um, getting off of it, having a relapse, that's considered, um, it, it justifies being on the medication for life. Wow. So to change gears a little bit, you and I met at Dr. Robin's baby shower, Dr. Robin Burson, and we kind of bonded over our my maybe affection, love um, for mushrooms, psychedelics, <laughs> whether it's taking them or just talking about them. Um, can you talk about what you think kind of they are and what the importance is to mental health or what it could be perhaps? And yeah. And I mean in like a medical kind of form, but certainly in a more casual form too. Yeah, so um, they're our most promising treatment line right now. And it's nice because it's a paradigm shift from what we've been doing up until now. Right now, we've sort of had drug and then new drug and then what's called a Me Too drug, which is like basically just a cousin of a previous iteration of a drug. And it's like, okay, this affects brain chemistry and some people seem to cry less when they take it or some people seem to be, you know, a little bit less flagrantly, you know, overtly symptomatic when they take this, but sometimes it comes with numbing, sometimes it comes with um, like a people report things like feeling less creative or less like themselves. And psychiatric, so psychedelic medicines, things like psilocybin, the active ingredient in mushrooms and LSD and even ayahuasca, um, they work in a, in a few different ways. There's a lot of biologic plausibility for why they're as effective as they've been shown to be in studies. And then they work in a whole different way, which is why I'm most excited. So they work in a serotonergic way as well. They're very active at the 5-HT2A receptors. So it's not such a far cry from our psychiatric medications, but they seem to work in a way that is um, sort of more like a one-time experience. And then you have a long lasting, like an enduring effect um, that's not numbing. They are anti-inflammatory. They increase something called brain-derived neurotrophic factor, or BDNF, which is basically your brain's capacity for changing and growing and adapting. So it's to say, like, we're not stuck. If you're in a ruminative depression or stuck in trauma or stuck in substance abuse or OCD, these kinds of stuck patterns in the brain, um, BDNF can change things and psychedelics increase BDNF activity in the brain. But then, and they work in a few different ways. They increase global connectivity in the brain, which is just interesting to me, but we don't really know the implications of that yet. But to me, what's most interesting is that their effectiveness is it's proportional to the degree to which you have a mystical experience, which is to say, like, the more you trip your balls off, the more, <laughs> the better it works. And yeah. that's fascinating and exciting because the pharmaceutical industry is going to come in and say, okay, psychedelics are effective. Let's take out the messy part where people are tripping and let's just isolate it down to some chemical essence that's going to give people the benefit and we'll patent it and we'll sell it as a drug. And even that I'm saying might be kind of an improvement over Lexapro. But even more exciting is that if you're doing this work in a more reverent, traditional, sacred way with a shaman, with the proper set and setting, then you're more likely to have a, the full mystical experience. And that is more effective. And the reason it's more effective is really exciting for just my worldview about what it means to be here as a human. Rather than taking us rather than numbing us and taking us out of our truth, it brings us closer into it. It gives us a confrontation with what's true in our unconscious and in our heart that we're not really opening our eyes to. It allows us to move through complicated grief really powerfully rather than these ways we sort of lock up big feelings in our lives just to survive. Um, so, and in a number of other ways, it just takes us really into it. And that the fact that that improves our mental health is amazing, right? It's to say that 
the point was never to be strong and stoic and to avoid feelings. The point is to go into the messiness of your humanity and feel it deeply and flow with it. And then you're actually able to dance through life with more ease and, and more balance. I love that. I mean, it's, it, it just, oftentimes I feel like, especially in this culture, that we're constantly just supposed to strive for happiness and can and whatever that means. And I, I rub up against that because of exactly what you just said, which is, you know, I, w- I want to seek challenges. I want to, you know, come up against my walls. And that certainly means that sometimes I'm not happy. Um, and I'm not sure if I'm just seeking happiness. I'm seeking to feel all the feelings. Yeah. Happiness as the goal needs to be canceled. It's like, we like, I try to cry in a big way, at least a a handful of times a week, right? Like it's, you want to feel all of the humanness, all of the exquisite emotions. And um, to think that happiness can just be the presiding sentiment driving the ship at all times. um, It's totally imbalanced. It's just the way we get imbalanced in all these ways, like young medical system with no yin, all happy all the time. Like we basically, I think that the Pixar movie Inside Out actually gets this really right. And it's like, you can't just be happy all the time. It only works when it's co-pilot is sadness. And yeah. Chinese medicine has this beautiful imagery for a bamboo tree that's basically like swaying in the wind. And you sway to happiness sometimes, you sway to grief sometimes, to anger, to sadness. You, you sway, you come back to your center ground, but like you don't resist any of these directions. They are all part of the breezes that, that flow through us and, and embrace it. Yeah, and I think that's the beautiful thing about at least the experiences I've had and I know some of my close friends have had on psychedelics is you go through so many kind of phases of feelings, yet somehow there is this overall feeling of love that is kind of this thread throughout everything. And so even the grief isn't scary. Even the scary things aren't scary because somehow you just feel this oneness and this connection to everything. And I know there was, I think there was an article, maybe it was in the New York Times or something talking about the web and the matrix of mushrooms and how they have this web underground and they help trees talk to each other. They help the soil, you know, in one place talk to the soil all the way a mile away and that they're like this intricate system and that they really are the things that kind of unite like the earth. And so I love thinking about that in in the context of Um, experiencing them because that is really the feeling that you get. Yeah, tuning into that communication system of the planet and of nature. Yeah, and I think it's part of why in a psychedelic experience we're able to have such difficult confrontations and be okay is there is a presiding feeling of being held and supported, guided with love. And I think like there you have it, right? Like that's the answer to the take-home test of life. Like we know the answer. You can Google it. The answer is love, right? <laughs> it's like, yeah, you're, you're not going to get an A on the test because you got the answer right. It's like the way you live your life is you writing the essay to demonstrate that you understand the answer. And I think that basically psychedelics are a force for um, helping us shift from that vibration of fear and scarcity to the vibration of love and connection. And if this were easy, I mean, like I'm about this and I'm, you know, maybe getting a 35% on the test right now, right? It's like, this is hard and it's hard for our very like humanness and that part of our brain, the default mode network, which psychedelics also act upon that makes us feel separate, that makes us feel like me against the world and to start to recognize how interconnected we are and that by being gentle and loving towards fellow living beings, towards the planet, like that's how we're also gentle and loving toward ourselves. And coronavirus has actually had an interesting role in this because you see in a way that's been more sort of concrete than ever before, how very much we're all in this together. Mm -hmm. All of us. Like when has something affected all of us? Certainly not in our lifetime. Yeah, Mm -hmm. wherever. And if if people out there, you know, obviously if it's recreational, you're on your own. (laughs) If if people are dealing with you know, serious mental health issues, like are there people they can reach out to if they want to seek some kind of psychedelic help or is that not a thing yet? It's kind of a thing. So, um, and like, I think it's very important to say all of this is just education and, um, you know, it's not medical advice, but I do think that um, 
I really do mean this not in a medical legal sense, but in a very real sense. Like it's not actually the right medicine for everyone. And for people whose brains are already kind of chaotic, whether it's psychosis or bipolar or even a family history of that, I think it can be really destabilizing to have a psychedelic experience. Um, it's more for like a rigid stuck pattern like depression, anxiety, OCD, where it can be most helpful. Right now, ketamine um, is sort of the legal option. And there are a lot of different ketamine approaches that have been sprouting up around the country. So that's an option. There are places like Oakland, California, and Denver where psilocybin has been decriminalized, but that doesn't mean it's legal and it doesn't really mean that we have a robust system for getting this kind of treatment in an appropriate setting. So in a way, you kind of have to navigate the underground and just make sure that you're, you're doing right by yourself and in good hands. And you approach it but there is a vast like with fungi under the soil like there is a vast underground network of people taking the risk and doing this work because they really believe it's their mission and is this typically used as um a one-time kind of break out of your mentality type of experience or is this something that people need to do or do on a regular basis it's a little bit of both. Um, there, certainly I've had patients who've had like a one-time experience and then that was it. Um, more often I'll see someone who sort of needs like a booster shot, maybe a couple times a year. Some people do it once a season. And then there are people that feel really good with the microdosing approach of taking something every day or taking it a few days on and a few days off. Um, I think that for most of us, it's um, if it's a good medicine for you, you do it when you feel called to it. And, you know, you kind of have to get comfortable with that worldview and that language that that little tiny voice in you tells you when it's the right time. Um, there's a famous saying, I think it was Ram Dass, who was like, when the conversation's over, hang up the phone. And I think like there is such thing as like too much of a good thing with this. And mm -hmm. it's not just like great medicine. I'm going to do it every weekend now. Um, it should be sacred. It should be rare. Um, I think about the feeling someone has as they enter into an ayahuasca ceremony. It's sort of like it shakes the ground underneath you and it tells you you are about to commune with divine spirit and this is a big deal. Don't approach this lightly. And I think that that's true across the board. Like, I don't think that this is something to just like bust out every Saturday night just for shits and giggles. I think it is something to approach with like full reverence. Mm. I love that. Mm. Well, I feel like this is a beautiful place to end on light work because I feel like we're ending. We, we talk a lot at Sakara about kind of bridging science and spirit. And we talk about how things that we do at Sakara are backed by science, but guided by spirit. And I feel like the psychedelic world and kind of the hope that maybe this could be a tool in the toolkit for mental health practitioners really kind of is that bridge of science and spirituality. So at the end of every episode, we do light work. So we talk about, you know, our, our mission here at SCAR is to help people shine their brightest light. And so light work is work to help us shine our light. So it's usually some kind of challenge meant to get us uncomfortable and break us out of any kind of mundane activities, thought patterns, etc. So whatever comes to mind for light work for anyone listening. Yeah. So um, I'm going to give two answers. Um, so like the very cut and dry material answer is just get the phone out of your bedroom. It's like not something we talked a lot about, but that intervention alone impacts the quality of your sleep, impacts what's seating your unconscious before you dream. It just it impacts your circadian rhythm. It's a wonderful, relatively easy intervention to make. So that's like the cut and dry one. And then let's go sort of psycho-spiritual balls to the wall. <laughs> Do you think? Okay. Um, I think that just a little context. Um, in Nonviolent Communication by Marshall Rosenberg, he talks about your true yes and your true no. And that basically when someone's like, oh, hey, you know, we should grab coffee on Thursday. If you're feeling in your body, no. But you hear your mouth say, okay. You know, it's like that's basically you giving people your false yes. And it doesn't help anybody. It doesn't help you. You're witnessing yourself betraying yourself. Um, it doesn't help the person because maybe they schedule their plans around it and then you flake last minute or you show up and you present the person or whatever it is. And you really always want to navigate the world with your true yes. It is confrontational and can be uncomfortable in the moment, but it is an act of clarity and kindness. And I think that the real light work that I want to encourage people to 
cultivate in their lives is where you're just never betraying yourself. You're just always hearing that small voice, large voice that's your body saying, you know, here's our truth. Can you live that, feel that, say that, speak from a place of that, plan your schedule around it and make all choices based on that. And I don't expect anyone to, to sort of nail it 100% of the time. So when you miss it, you're gentle and compassionate and patient with yourself. It's all self-loving, but you're just aiming towards operating from a place where you're just never betraying yourself. It's amazing. We are so on the same wavelength. Um, I just started reading Women and Desire Beyond Wanting to Be Wanted. It's by Polly Eisendrath. And it's exactly this, except it's obviously focused on women and desire and how women typically want to be wanted. And I think this connects so much to your light work because oftentimes we have false yeses and nos because we want to be liked or we want to be adored or loved. And so it's it's crazy that this is the light work right now because this is something I'm really trying to be conscious of, of. Like, where is this desire to just be liked and wanted versus how I actually feel? And the crazy thing is that exactly what you just said, the person on the other side just wants to know the truth. Like we think we're doing a favor by kind of padding our response or doing what we think is right, but people really want us to stand in our truth. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think the reason we do betray ourselves is a lifetime of conditioning. Um, I love Glennon Doyle's book, Untamed, for sort of opening our eyes to all the ways that we're socialized and conditioned to betray ourselves. But you're exactly right. When we start standing in our truth, when our posts get trolled, when we turn someone down for a plan, like everyone actually just appreciates you being in your truth at the end of the day, though some people may protest. Mm -hmm. And what do you think it does for our mental health? to like do that or rather maybe the opposite like what is it doing to our mental health to not be to be doing these fake yeses and no's I yeah mental health is so vast and so affected from everything we do and say and eat and feel and how we sleep and every time we betray ourselves I think it's it's an abandonment like it it's very triggering to that part of our makeup that that determines how we feel it just feels shitty And I think that your mental health is like vibrant and singing when it sees you being true to yourself, standing up for yourself, advocating for yourself and making choices from a place of self-love. So beautifully said. We adore you. Thank you so, so much for joining us today and for um, having the, the mission that you do. Thank you guys. Thanks for doing what you do and letting me be a part of it. So one of the things that really stood out to me in this conversation was when we asked Dr. Ellen Vora about her personal mission, she said it was to heal the bodies. And I think that's so interesting because she's a psychiatrist and she's so much about mental health, but in order to heal mental health, she wants to heal the bodies. Mm. I love that connection. And she talked about it often in here, which was the physical is kind of the low hanging fruit, right? Like first let's, let's fix all the physical inputs from, you know, meditation to keeping your phone at your bedside to the food that you eat every single day. Like that's the stuff that's easiest to fix. Right. And we talk so much about how food is really the foundation for all of these other layers for fixing your mood and your relationship and your career and ultimately your spiritual health, um, that it really starts with the inputs that you're putting into your physical and making sure that your body is functioning properly that can help you achieve those other levels that go more into the emotional and mental realm. I love this story from a new subscriber, Emily from Virginia. And she writes, I've been a subscriber of Sakara Life for three weeks. I've been struggling on and off with an eating disorder my entire life. I can honestly say after three weeks, I have a healthier relationship with food. All of the meals are delicious, nutritious, and satisfying. I'm a major snacker and I haven't felt the need to snack in between meals. My sugar cravings have decreased as well. The customer service has been wonderful. I'm so happy I finally decided to give it a try. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Thanks, Emily. 
Yeah, it's amazing what just a few weeks of changing these inputs into your physical body can do for your overall mood and happiness levels and your relationship to food. And we talk about this a lot, how the more you eat this way, the more you want to eat this way. That if you typically have cravings for things you don't want to be eating on the regular, that the more you can kind of follow this nutrition protocol, the more those cravings will change. And then the more you build body intelligence. And then as we talked about today with Dr. Vora, you can start to cultivate that body intelligence and inner voice and actually listen to it. You know, cravings aren't necessarily inherently bad. They're just bad if they're kind of interceptions from your inner voice, your true inner voice. So eating this way really helps us cultivate that inner voice that we get to listen to. And maybe it's like doing that dose of psychedelics. You just need something to break your habit, break the mundane. And, you know, doing a week of Saqqara can really do that for you to just break you out of your normal day-to-day habits and start to shift, start to change you on a biological level, starting with your, your gut, your gut microbes. So thank you, Emily, for sharing your Sakara story with us. We love to hear from you guys. Every story is so meaningful to us and helps us to stay motivated on our mission. So keep them coming. If you have a Sakara story that you would like to share with us, we'd love to hear from you. Send us an email at sakarastories at sakaralife.com. That's S-A-K-A-R-A-S-T-O-R-I-E-S at sakaralife.com or send us a DM at sakaralife. Don't forget to hit subscribe for the Sakara Life podcast and share this episode with anyone you think needs to hear what we talked about today. And don't forget about the light work. It might feel a little hard, a little uncomfortable, but it's supposed to. The whole idea is that we lean into what's uncomfortable so we all get to shine our lights a little brighter. And we'll see you on the other side, Sakara Lights. This podcast was recorded live at Noya House in New York City.